Howdy friends, welcome to Experience Design with Tony Dosat. I happen to be Tony Dosat. If this is your first time tuning in or you're back for more, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, some housekeeping. This podcast is ad-free and my plans are to keep it that way. However, I do want to tell you about something. Over and over again, I get questions in my DMs like, how do I become a UX designer? Or how do I get hired as a UX designer? Or I don't know why I'm not getting hired, etc., etc., etc. You get the idea. Well, never fear. I am creating a course for all of you UX design hopefuls out there. It hasn't launched yet, obviously. But I am running a special little promotion for all of you listeners. If you head over to HiredUX.com, H-I-R-E-D-U-X.com, and pop in your email address, you will be the first to know about the launch, and you'll get 50% off the entire course price. Now then, with that out of the way, let's just jump into this week's conversation. My guest this week is the founder of Strathern Design, a consultancy that assists businesses in navigating the murky waters of UX. He helps companies have better UX outcomes by providing seasoned advice in areas like hiring, engaging with design agencies, and internal DNA change to support a design-oriented culture. It's my pleasure to have on the show today, Sam Horodesky. Sam! Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the nice intro. Excellent. You know, it's one of these things where what you do, I find, is infinitely important. And a lot of companies, hell, dare I say most companies, really need that help. So before we dive into something really meaty in that UX culture thingamabob, Mm -hmm. can you give me a 10,000-foot view of your life and your career and how you got to be doing and being who you are today. Of course. So I always start out with my education because I consider it to be very important. My degrees are in uh, psychology and then cognitive science. So I always stress when I'm talking to clients, I come at UX from a very psychological view and I'm always thinking about human cognition and how people perceive and think about things. And I talk a lot about mental models and things like that. So I actually did a specialty in HCI, that stands for Human Computer Interaction, and that kind of this was in 2000, and it let me transfer pretty easily into the workplace once I decided that's what I wanted to do. So I uh, worked at a place called Qualcomm, it's a very big company for eight oh, years, yeah. and and they, uh, you know, just to give some background on them in terms of their culture, are just like hard, hardcore engineers. I mean, you can't find anywhere, you know, another place that has more harder core engineers than these people. So breaking into that culture and having them understand what usability is and what user experience is and how humans differ from computers, like that's the central issue, right, is that when they're coding things, they begin to build up their own mental models about how the computer is thinking about things, which is completely different often from how the the person thinks about stuff. Mm. So that was the key lesson that I, I learned at Qualcomm. And then I moved on to a company called Teradata, And they had a bunch of marketing applications and they were all web-based and they were largely SaaS and also very critically, they were B2B. So uh, my experience there was very much formed by 
trying to achieve UX transformation in a B2B environment. Mm. And um, that's kind of my specialty. And it's anyway, it was very challenging. So overall, I've spent roughly 15 years working for large corporate bureaucracies. And not that I will never go back to doing that, but I did decide that at one point that I kind of wanted to branch out on my own and become kind of my own boss. So um, when did you, so that was Strathern. When did you start that? Uh, it's been about two and a half years now. And how's it going so far? Good. I mean, you know, there's a lot more as someone who's turned from a full-time employee who gets a paycheck every week, right, to Mm. someone who's self-employed. I think the big difference is trying to is business development, right? There's a lot more of that that I think that I really understood, which is, you know, trying to find clients, trying to, and actually, you know, there's a whole sales funnel. So you find clients, but then you've got to, you know, convince them that you're the appropriate fit and then uh, or see if there's an appropriate fit and then getting all the way through procurement, you know, it's, there's kind of a lot of ups and downs in that, in that kind of life. So it's, it's definitely very different than just being an employee. I'll, I'll say that. What is that outreach like right now for anyone else that might be an entrepreneur listening or wanting to start their own thing? Do you do cold calls, emails, LinkedIn, I'm sure that, you know, I know salespeople who would absolutely do that. And if I really wanted to, I could hire like a biz dev person who would, who would do that. I'm personally not comfortable with cold calls and things like that. Yeah. Actually, it turns out, I mean, so specifically for user experience, there actually are some pretty good platforms that you can use to, to try to get jobs. So I do some work on Upwork, which is often thought of sort of a low cost platform, but it doesn't need to be that way. You can actually, um, you know, get, get paid pretty well. Mm. And then I also use TopToll. They're another resource for where, again, uh, you know, your rates can be quite reasonable. So those are great resources for UX designers to try to find positions. And then, you know, uh, I'm actually doing the podcast circuit, right? Doing the podcast yeah. circuit is a way of getting my getting the word out. And um, luckily, because I do have a lot of experience, some people are, you know, like you are interested in what I have to say. Very interested. <laughs> so let me do a little pivot here. UX designers right? What makes a great UX designer? There are a lot of different ways that I could go about answering that question, but I'll just take it at the highest level, which is that I think there's a big misconception or UX designers themselves have a big misconception that the most important thing is being a rock star designer. Mm. And when I say that, I will use the word technical skills so that you're the best technical UX designer that you can be. What I found, you know, we mentioned earlier the word DNA change, and that's really central to a successful transition when you are a company going from having a, a lousy UX, which is very, this is very common in the B2B space, right? Going from an old UX that was built in 2000 to now wanting to make it more modern. So being able to achieve that DNA change means working with all of the surly engineers and working with the product managers who are going to have strong opinions and sometimes believe that they're actually UX designers themselves. And so having the soft skills, having the people skills to be able to, first of all, tolerate that, but then actually, you know, either thrive in it or at least do well at influencing others to get your designs done the way that you want them to do. So there's a lot of, you know, I think people tend to call it politics, Mm. but I don't really think of it as politics. I think that's really the wrong way to look at it. Anytime you get any group of human beings together, there's politics. Like just think about, you know, your church group trying to arrange really anything, right? It turns political almost immediately. So as soon as you have a bunch of humans in a room together or in an organization, you're going to have human dynamics. And so the truth is 
to be a really good designer, you need to be a good influencer, not just a really good technical person. So you need a good blend of those those uh, capabilities. And people who are just like 99 to one, they're not going to survive very well, or they might survive, but they're going to be perceived as egotistical, or they're going to have trouble getting, you know, achieving the outcomes that they actually want. That is really great. I just want to repeat something that you said that just knocked my brain into a puddle. To be a good designer, you need to be a good influencer. Yeah. What does that mean to you exactly? Well, let's just say it's not actually about schmoozing and the typical concept of people, people skills. Cause I actually personally am, am an introvert. Um, so it's not like I like going out. You asked me earlier about, you know, what are ways of finding clients? Some people actually go to all sorts of events where like they just walk into a room where there's 200 people and they don't know anyone and they try to dig up business that way. I'm not personally comfortable with that, but I'm actually quite good on a one-on-one basis. So, you know, what does it mean? It means being able to engage with a person in a non-confrontational manner, even when sometimes, you know, you're talking about a quite heated, you know, things get very heated very quickly, especially with some personalities, right? There are some personalities who tend to get very excited very quickly. So just learning how to um, navigate those waters. Actually, there's a really fantastic book that one of my old mentors turned me on to. It's called Crucial Conversations. I believe the author is Patterson. Anyway, definitely a book called Crucial Conversations talks a lot about that ability to monitor when you're getting upset and how to handle not getting upset and just continuing and having a fruitful and constructive conversation. I find that so true. And too often, we don't embrace and work in through that tension. And what ends up happening sometimes is instead of working through the tension in the boardroom, it gets shoved under the rug. And then right after there's this side meeting that happens where you're not involved in it and then decisions get made and then another meeting happens and it's completely 180 of what happened or what was decided upon because of these side meetings, because it wasn't right there in the room. And you don't have to put on gloves and start boxing with people, but an appropriate, intentional conversation working through and into that tension. Yeah, so absolutely. Conflict management is just so central. And that's not, I think, absolutely comes as news to most people, most UX designers, especially junior ones entering the field. Like no one Mm. tells them in school that figuring out how to navigate the waters of, you know, of surly engineers is something that they really need to be good at. Listen, engineers listening. Look, we call you surly. (laughs) We 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 actually love you. And that's the thing. This is a bit of a tangent, but I am so tired and sick of, I'm very active on social media. I have a bit of a following. And if you look on Instagram, which is really having sort of a design moment right now in the community, there are so many memes that UX designers will create or UI designers, et cetera, will create that demonizes the client. (laughs) Right. And it's like, I get it. We like to have a laugh every once in a while. It's good to blow off some steam. But this idea that the client is the devil, because it's not their fault. At the end of the day, it's not their fault that they aren't understanding what you're doing. Right. They didn't study it. They don't do it every day. Right. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's two sides to it. It's kind of frustrating if someone hires you, whether it's an internal person, whether you're being hired internally within a company or externally. And then they don't listen to your advice. Mm. But at the same time, it's really 
on you to be able to explain to them in a language that they understand. I mean, I think that's the key in a language yeah, that's that they right. understand. And again, so just coming back to engineers, right? They have a particular language that they understand. So mm-hmm. being able to do that is, is absolutely important. And speaking to the engineers, the project managers, often and early as possible is key to me. And that's something that I still struggle with and work on every single day because it's very easy to get in your own bubble, whether it's on a whiteboard or whether you're just, you have a Sharpie with a notepad, whatever it is as a UX designer, you get in your flow state or whatever (laughs) you want to call it. Right. And you forget that, well, shoot, there's a lot of people working on this and a lot of this is contingent on all of those people's brains and you got to get them involved. Yeah. I mean, they always have, I was going to say, they always have really valuable feedback. I guess in some cases, it's actually not really valuable, but but most of the time, you know, <laughs> there's, there's almost always something behind it. You know, that's another thing as a, actually one of our skills is a, a, that we do get taught, right? Is that when you listen to users, you can't listen directly to what, what they're saying on the, just at the most surface level. You have to look underneath what they're talking about mm. and try to understand the need that they're articulating. And like the typical thing would be if a user explains, says to you that, oh, I want there to be a red button here. Like, well, we've all been taught, you know, users aren't designers, designers are designers. So, you know, you don't listen to something like that, which is true. You try to understand the underlying need that the user is articulating. It is no different when your project manager or product manager is sort of in conflict with you. You're trying to, you have to understand what the underlying issue is. And sometimes, actually, when it comes to engineering, so commonly, the issue is actually about this uh, scope of the implementation and it's just dressed up as something totally different. So mm-hmm. what will happen is someone will come in and start throwing darts at different aspects of the design. And when you really get to the nut of it, it actually has nothing to do with the design. It's just that aspects of the design are really hard to implement. And that's the part that's freaking them out. I learned that lesson really early at Qualcomm. I think that is infinitely true. And what I would say to UX designers that are having a hard time taking those darts and not internalizing it as I suck or I'm a terrible designer or or the flip side of that, which is they suck and they don't know what they're talking about and they're trying to just kill my dreams. If you get your designs up before you start doing the high fidelity stuff and get them to punch holes early and often, then that's called collaboration. Like that's working together. That's not, here's all the things that I've been doing for three months and they start tearing it down. And you're like, ah, again, that's on you. That's not their fault. That's all on you. Yep. That's right. So let me flip it around. I asked you what makes a great UX designer. What makes a bad UX designer? (laughs) Wow. What makes a bad UX designer? I mean, the thing is, I do believe that to be a UX designer, you have to actually have some good intuitions about how users think. Mm. So this might be a little bit controversial in the sense that uh, I think we're kind of taught that everything is about the data that, you know, you should learn from the analytics, but not only that, you know, to really make any informed decision whatsoever, you need to go consult users. And I think, but I think people that don't develop their own internal design compass and people that don't, sort of have a good intuition for what makes a good design, they're never really going to be good designers. So I like to talk about being data informed as opposed to being completely data driven. 
Mm. Um, so I think, I mean, there are a huge number of dimensions that can make someone a bad designer, but I think I wanted to pick something kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. There's a quote that I'm about to butcher, so bear with me. Mm. But it's, not all things that are measurable are important, and not all things that are important are measurable. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that brings to mind, so when you're working on a really arcane use case, right? So when you're actually getting deep into the weeds of a, of a design, which I believe is very important, especially again, because my pedigree is working with engineers and engineers, like if they didn't know what to do, they would either make it up or come to me. Making it up almost always resulted in something bad. So they, I trained them to like always come to me. And so I ended up really dealing in just incredibly detailed interactions and uh, so, but the, the thing is, is, so you'd have this like condition that would only happen in this one time or would only happen under these circumstances combined with these other circumstances to actually usability test that. First of all, actually figuring out how to usability test it is very difficult. But then realistically, you know, when you've got 20 of those types of cases, you just absolutely cannot test all 20 of them. It's just not realistic. Yeah. So you've got to be able to figure out how to make your way through that, how to make those decisions without usability testing everything. I have one question for you that is all about that DNA that we were speaking of earlier, that internal mm -hmm. DNA about design-oriented culture. I think a lot of companies will say that they are, whether it's to attract talent or just to, I don't know, hoist up the buzzword. But in reality, they're just not. So where does it start? Does it start with the designer? Does it start with some management, the leadership in design, or does it start with the CEO? I find that it doesn't start with the CEO. The CEO is typically not going to be involved in that level of, I mean, it can be certainly if you have a CEO that's very involved, that's great. But I mean, for me, the nut of it is actually about business investment. So I know there's a, again, I'm going to say something which I may be controversial or not, which is that I think I've, I've heard people say things like it's cheaper to do good design. Now, I think it's true that in the long run, it's cheaper to do good design. So it's cheaper to do it right the first time than do it wrong and then keep doing it over and over again. Right. But when you're just doing it the first time, your design most likely does not match how the computer thinks and how the coder is going to be able to code it is going to take longer to implement. So I, I almost always find that my great ideas are going to you know, take a long time. So it comes to whoever makes the decision about business investment has to make the decision that says, yes, we are going to invest the money, which is actually the engineer's time, to implement the designs that you know, our designers are, and product managers are, are collaborating on, or in an agile team, just say that the teams are collaborating on. So if you're constantly just like a feature factory, just like shooting out features and picking like the middle road in terms of what your design options are, then yeah, you don't really have a design culture, even if you have a lot of UX designers. Right. Yes, I would say it's expensive. It's not only financially expensive, it's, I've never said the word culturally expensive for the company, but taxing maybe because there are growth pains, right? There yeah, are. So this is the, this is the thing, you know, I hear a lot of, of talk about, you know, there being someone at the seat of the table and have being chief design officer. And it's not that I, I disagree with that. I think it's great to have a chief design officer, but ultimately what matters, but, but the CTO and the chief product officer, you don't always have all of those people, but 
all of those people are the ones that control the purse strings. Mm. So even if you have a seat at the table, ultimately the people deciding, you know, how much time they're going to take to do something and how many hours they're going to basically pay for, that's who's really, those are the people making the decisions. And so my point is that a chief design officer very rarely makes those decisions in isolation, right? They always have a partner that helps them with that. And exactly like what we were talking about earlier, this is a prime example of where conflict is going to come up and slap everybody in the face in the boardroom when it comes to finance. Design decisions aside, the financial implications of digging into a design-oriented culture, that's going to be some tension. Yeah, no, now that you mentioned that, I mean, another big thing that is is actually very important to design, right, is the uh, environment. So, Mm. you know, what your desks are like and what the, I mean, there's this kind of parody of a startup, right, where everybody's on scooters and playing pool and video games or or like like the Google pot, you know, what are they called? The sleep pods. But I think, you know, we all know what is definitely important besides company culture is actually your workspace. But to create a good workspace, especially within a big company, like I'm just going to pick Oracle, you know, or SAP, these are all giant companies to actually have a good workspace is very expensive, both just like in pure money to actually go and do the construction and make it the way. But it it can also buck the trend within the company, or you're actually doing something that's outside the norm. Um, And so it can be very expensive culturally as well to try to actually make that happen. That is just fact. Now, before I ask you my final question that I ask every guest, I want you to do a a little pitch. Where can people find you and who might be the right person to find you? Great. Yeah. So um, I think you mentioned the name of my consultancy is Strathern Design. I found out that in America, people have trouble with that name. So my website is actually just sdesign.io. Oh, nice. Again, sdesign.io, and that'll then bounce you to something that actually is called Strathern Design. And then I've always thought that for me, for my consultancy, the ideal customer is actually someone who's trying to enact a turnaround. So who has kind of Mm -hmm. this creaky old software like I was talking about and knows that there's a problem and has either tried multiple times and failed, because that happens a lot. I've seen lots of failures for all sorts of different reasons, which is a juicy topic all in and of itself. And so for someone who's looking to find out how they can have a successful UX engagement, and then again, using those terms that I was using is how to actually change the DNA of the company so that it produces good user experience. So anyone who's looking to do that would be a good client for me. Excellent. And I'm going to link that in the show notes, everybody listening. Let's reach out to Sam. So here's the final question. What object or thing that you own or possess that is non-digital means the most to you or has impacted your life the most and why? Well, for me, that's pretty easy, but it really has nothing to do with design. I'm actually a cello player. Oh, no kidding. So definitely my cello. Um, Actually, right now is like key orchestra season. Everybody's doing, this is like Beethoven's 150th anniversary. So everybody and their brother is doing Beethoven. But uh, yeah, so I think in terms of an object, and then my cello has been with me since I was like 12 or something like that. Wow. The same cello? The same cello. Yeah, absolutely. And you said it has nothing to do with design. I mean, can you think of something that, not to say that you're old, but it's been around a minute and that thing is still working. Like beautifully, I imagine. Yeah, sure. Oh, 
yeah, well, all I meant is that I don't, I'm not sure how much it influences my design career. Oh, for sure. Certainly. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is too cool. I want to thank you again for being on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. And I hope some people reach out to you. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. That will do it for this week, friends. Thank you again to my guest and thank you again to all of you tuning in. I can't tell you how valuable you are to me. I would also like to give a really special shout out to all of the new patrons of the show, including, of course, my new executive producer, Brian Sullivan. Now, if you're wondering how you might best support the show, head over to patreon.com slash XD podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash XD podcast. I also have a link in the show notes. And check out all the perks of becoming a patron of the show here. And listen, if Patreon doesn't float your boat, if it's not your thing, I get it. But a subscribe or a view or share, it's always just as meaningful as something like Patreon to me. It really is so impactful. So with that, I can't wait to have you back next week. But until then, friends, stay curious. Experience Design is part of XD Media, LLC. All opinions are my own and do not reflect those of my current or former employers. <laughs>